Welcome to the Destinate NZ Show. I'm Michelle. And I'm Chambers. And today we're bringing you part three of our Tourism Awards special series. Wow, Chambers, kia ora. Kia ora. How much fun are we having meeting all of these amazing Tourism Awards finalists? They're awesome. Yes. Oh, it's just, I'm feeling so inspired. It's, and it's really nice after what's been a really tough 18 months for our industry to be talking positive stories and celebrating success, basically. Celebrating success. Yeah, that's exactly it. Who would have thought 18 months of hardship would lead to some great successes? Yeah. And so many applications towards that. Exactly. So before we get too far in, we need to say a big thank you to all of our listeners, because last week we shot up the charts to Woo-hoo! be the number five marketing podcast in New Zealand. Oh, wow. (laughs) But I've also been doing a bit of analysis on where our listeners come from. And guess what? It's not just New Zealand and your family in the UK and my family in Australia. Oh, really? So we have last, other people. Yeah, there are. There are. We've gone <laughs> worldwide. We've gone global. No, last week we welcomed listeners from New Zealand and Australia, but also the United States, United Kingdom, Austria, Chile, oh. France, and Italy. So if you're tuning in from outside of Australasia and listening in, a huge kia ora and welcome to you. Yeah, welcome. That's amazing. And I've got some exciting news. We've got an update on our competitions. We're receiving a huge number of entries for the Dart River Funyak Safari Comp. So remember, all you need to do is to head to the competitions page at destinatenz.com and tell us your favourite episode of the podcast and why. And it's really easy. A few votes so far for the Women in Leadership show with Sarah Webster and a great one of the Youth Market episode with Brian Westwood. So get cracking. You have until the 23rd of November to put your vote in, but you'll win a Funyak Safari for two people valued at $5.98. And if you're in tourism and in this industry, yes, of course you can enter. Our podcast is for you. So these prizes are too. Yeah, I mean, that's an easy one. I want to win that one, actually. I know. <laughs> I, we can't enter. <laughs> so if you're listening, you need to jump online now and enter because it's just too easy. And it's too a easy. fabulous prize. <laughs> and I'm happy to be a renter friend. It's yeah, okay. Yeah, me too. <laughs> we can toss a coin. Yes. <laughs> and, and this week we've got another competition. This is a Facebook competition this week. So we had an Instagram one um, the week before last, and this is in conjunction with our mates at the Dark Sky Project in Takapo. So you can win a summit experience for two valued at $298. So head to Destinate NZ at Facebook right now and enter. It's super easy. Just do it. And we'll announce the winners next week on the show. Yeah. So not to get confused. The competition I talked about, you've got till the 23rd of November for your Funyaks. Otherwise, it's a, we'll announce the winners next week, right? Yep, exactly. So also this week is Mental Health Awareness Week. So just checking in on how you all are. And that's one of the main reasons we do this show. Please feel free to reach out. We always love to receive messages from you. And make sure that this year you follow the theme of taking time to Kororo. So we'd love to hear what you have planned with your teams this week to build awareness around mental health and well-being and stress management in your workplace. Yeah. Well, drop us a line on all our social media posts to let us know. Yeah, absolutely. And you'll see I'm showing Chambers my beautiful, mindful colouring that I started listening to the Prime Minister's briefing today because I found that I needed that to keep me a little bit calm. And it's working. (laughs) So I'm going to keep doing updates to show you through the week how my colouring in is going. So check it out and show me yours. Tag Destinate NZ and let us know what you're doing as well. Well, as we said, this is part three of our special tourism awards series. And once again, we have three more amazing finalists to introduce you to. Our industry is so full of talent and we are unearthing some of that right here for you on the Destinate NZ show. We sure are. And we start this week with another one of the Emerging Tourism Leader Award finalists, Nicole Botting. 
A self-confessed tourism marketing nerd, Nicole has spent the last 10 years working in a variety of public and private sector business roles. From the Discover Waitomo and Kiwi Experience brands at THL to destination marketing for Southland, Fiordland and Christchurch. Nicole is now at Maverick Digital. She leads a team to deliver exceptional digital marketing for some of New Zealand's most iconic and beloved tourism experiences. A passionate advocate for our industry, Nicole has sat on the Biata board, Young Tech board, and more recently was part of the Tourism Futures Task Force Advisory Group. Yeah, she's certainly one smart cookie. And then after that, we have Jared Simcox joining us from the Dark Sky Project in Takapo. They are finalists in the Hikaike Akuringa Māori Tourism Award. Jared is a passionate business leader and adventure seeker with family ties to the Mackenzie District. He has a background in tourism, commercial aviation leadership, e-commerce, online and retail distribution. After spending eight years living and working overseas, he has returned to New Zealand to take on the role as business manager at the Dark Sky Project, bringing his innovative thinking and business skills to the district. At Dark Sky Project, they believe the night skies should be accessible to all and they strive to connect their manahuri to the night skies, inspiring a lifelong understanding and passion for dark sky preservation and what lies above. Takapo and the Arak Mackenzie International Dark Sky Reserve is home to some of the world's darkest skies. It may be one of the quietest spots on the planet, yet it has to be one of the busiest skies in the universe. It sure is. And, and you know a lot about that region. <laughs> absolutely do. And I've seen those skies many a time. Anyway, last but not least, we welcome the woman with the best job in the world, Emma Bean. Emma is the Kiwi Husbandry Manager at the National Kiwi Hatchetry in Rotorua. And they are finalists in the Dock Conservation Award. Emma has worked at the Hatchetry for over 14 years. And in that time, she has, has seen the 500th, the 1000th, and most recently, the 2000th Chick Hatch. She is originally British, but she likes to think herself as an honorary Kiwi, having become a New Zealand citizen. The National Kiwi Hatchery is New Zealand's largest Kiwi hatchery, hatching over 100 Kiwi chicks per year, representing 75% of all Kiwi species hatched in Kiwi facilities nationwide. They have successfully hatched over 2,100 Kiwi chicks since 1995, with an average hatch success rate of over 95%. The National Kiwi Hatchery is a purpose-built Kiwi incubation and hatching facility. Eggs are bought in, the in from the wild, incubated, hatched, and reared to a stoke-proof weight before being released back to where they came from as an egg. And this increases the chick survival rates from just 5% to 65%. It really is an awesome success story, and we know you'll love hearing Emma's passion for conservation shine through. Enjoy the show, everyone, and we'll see you next Wednesday. Happy day. I'm very happy to introduce our next guest to the show, Nicole Botting. Nicole is a finalist in the Parta New Zealand Trust Emerging Tourism Leader Award. Kia ora, Nicole, and welcome to the show. Hey, Michelle. Hey, Chambers. Nice to see you too. Kia ora. Great to have you here and congratulations on your finalist award. Great achievement. And obviously I'm a little bit biased because I have worked with you in the past. Um, <laughs> and I personally think you're one of New Zealand's smartest young marketers. So congratulations. But for those listeners who don't know where you've been in your career, can you just give us a bit of a background on how you started in tourism and where you've got to now? Awesome. Oh, thank you so much for your kind words, Michelle. It's been a little bit overwhelming being a finalist. Everyone is so amazing. And to be a finalist with two other incredible women has been pretty fantastic. I'm not going to lie. So pretty stoked about that. Yeah. So people that don't know me too well, I, I've had a, like quite a long and mixed tourism career. I actually started way back in my high school days doing an after-school job at House of Travel. Oh, right. <laughs> Go there every day after school and do glamorous things like stack brushes and um, clean the dishes. But that kind of put me on my tourism path a little bit. And 
went off to uni, did all the marketing tours and things you needed to do. And I did my thesis in the motivations of visitors traveling into the Catlins region, which mm-hmm. was pretty cool at the time. Being an Invercargill girl, that was yeah. of great interest to me. <laughs> but that very awesomely led into a job with Venture Southland and Destination Fieldland. So that was kind of my really first formal get to know a bit of everything experience. In particular, kind of working for Southland and Fieldland, clearly two very different tourism-based destinations. When I was with Destination Fieldland, I got to like learn all about trends. And at that time, trends was hosted in Queenstown. And that was such a cool thing to be part of. And then when I was with Southland, there were so many massive events like the Bertman Road Challenge. So I got to see, you know, kind of all these different destination things in one RTO, which I think really set me up for some cool stuff. Then I moved to the Big Smoke and mm-hmm. I left Invercargill and moved to Auckland to work at THL. I was there for a couple of years. I was brand manager for the Discover Waitomo products and same for Kiwi Experience. I also did a year in ops for Kiwi, which was a bit of an eye-opener for anyone that's done ops, dealing with, you know, bus crashes and earthquakes. It's a little bit different with than the usual marketing job. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. And then moved it back down to South Island. I did some marketing at Christchurch NZ for just over 18 months before I met the Maverick Digital team at Trends and uh-huh. were convinced to come back north again. So it's been a few changeable years, but super fun nonetheless yeah wow what a variety of roles that you've <laughs> awesome so what do you love most about working in the tourism industry um I think this is like a pretty stock standard answer that probably everyone gives but to be completely honest mate it is the people eh? like <laughs> it's you guys it's my tourism mates like I'll travel all over the country for long weekends with all my tourism mates it's you make these incredible connections with people who are just so equally passionate about what you do. But then it's also the people that you host and guide and, you know, have all these incredible experiences as well. Like, I can't, honestly, to be fair, I've never worked in any other industry. (laughs) (laughs) But I can't imagine working with people or having customers who are as passionate about what what you're doing. So, yeah, it's always going to be the people. Yeah, that's so true. And that's a common theme that does it. You're right. It comes through in a lot of not only these interviews that we're doing for the Tourism Awards, but even in our previous episodes, it is. It's about the people and the connections. And that's yeah. ultimately Can't get away from it. what makes it pretty special. Hey, absolutely. So what have been your biggest achievements or your biggest achievement to date in your career? I think that's a hard one. I think when I look back on like I've had the opportunity to do so much cool stuff. One thing that really comes to mind is when I was at Kiwi X, we, for like 20 plus years, we would hand out the same like 200 page book to everybody that got on the coach. Yeah. And I got to lead a project to turn that into an app. So it seems so logical. And of course, the customers we were dealing with were a lot younger. So they were like, why is this not an app, you crazy people? But it also gave us an opportunity to do cool things like have geo-targeted deals for the the driver guides to help sell for certain products. We could better do surveys to get a better understanding of what people were happy with or unhappy with. Mm -hmm. So that was really cool. Um, Really cool, like big shift in a quite a traditional way of doing marketing before. I was at THL for the 120th and the 25th celebrations for the Glorum Caves and Kiwi X. So that was pretty cool. Yeah. So many parties, but also in opportunities like that, you get to meet the people like you're the previous year, the people yeah. that have done your job many mm-hmm. moons ago or even recently. And man, you learn some cool stuff. Like you're all related somehow, I think, at the end of the day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Totally. It's just that history, isn't it? It really enriches stories that you can tell and have told and yeah. Someone else that can, you know, connect with you and tell you how these things happened and share their old war stories. Like it's like such a special thing to be part of. So I absolutely love those. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So Nicole, how do you feel you've added value to the tourism industry through the work you've done? I think mainly just through being open to change and encouraging the places that I worked with to change. I know I'm young, well, so everyone's like, oh yeah, you like the internet and like social media and stuff like that, <laughs> but it's true. <laughs> so yeah, adopting systems, being more open to digital marketing, launching new websites that are better for customers, all that kind of cool stuff that help brings the industry into that kind of next level. 
I think probably at the moment, I think when I think about value and what my kind of work has done is very much around supporting the clients that we work with. You know, it's been a hell of a year and the clients that we work with, whether through funding that they've been given or incredible clients that are, are still paying for for our work out of their own pocket. It's pretty, really sits like strong with you in your heart, like what you are doing to help support them to get through this time and always thinking about them and their business and what you could be doing differently. And, you know, loyalty goes both ways. Like you'll never forget um, somebody that took a punt on you during the tough times and always try and find a way to better support them whenever you can. So yeah, the last year has been and that's <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah that's one way to describe it yeah. <laughs> who um do you credit as having had an influence on your career is there one or two people out there that you can give a shout out to who have really made a difference to your growth and development I actually talked about this quite a bit in my application for the award oh, okay Mine have all been these like really incredible, strong women. Um, of course, Michelle, oh. you were up there as well. But like, do, did you ever meet Jolanda Cave? She's now yes. um, one of the leaders at Naitahu Tourism. Jo Ellison, she was CRO of Tourism Holdings. She's now at Naitahu as well. What is yep. happening? <laughs> <laughs> I think there was a big exodus yeah. <laughs> after Quentin went there. Yeah, yeah, like these incredible women who, um, you know, led in a different way to what I had been managed before and were open to giving you advice and teaching you about things that weren't just work if you know what I mean like they can connect with you on a different level where you will do anything to help support them and I think that's kind of how I like to see myself and how I like to support other young people like it doesn't always have to be about the work there's always a connection beyond that as well Yeah. yeah And so with that, Nicole, how do you manage your professional development and your upskilling? I'm like a massive nerd. (laughs) Over summer last year, I was so bored that I did my real estate agent papers. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, like I always kind of need something to keep me um, busy, I guess. I think I was thinking about this the other day. I think it all started when I was a bit younger because of the old, you know, imposter syndrome and feeling like I needed to kind of constantly upskill myself. And I think now, to be fair, I think I do it a lot more for to take my brain out of work. Like you ladies know what it's like with tourism. It never stops. Mm. You're busiest at the worst time of the year. And to have something that is not work that I physically have to do at nighttime that is different to checking my emails I find is a really good stress management kind of system for myself. See, I always like to do extra stuff, hence why I've done the young techs, etc. of the world. Like I like to have something extra. I'm actually, this will be the first time that I haven't had something outside of work. So if you ladies have any recommendations. <laughs> Real estate agents wasn't that fun. I won't be doing that again. <laughs> I did wonder. I did wonder. <laughs> So the study that you did for real estate, why did what made you choose that? Because I, I know we've talked about this in one of our earlier episodes about how many tourism people actually went away and did a real estate course. And it seemed to I'm be... Shocked. Yeah, when I saw that, I mean, congratulations to them all having great successful careers because I'm bloody loving following them on Instagram. But at the time, I'd re- recently well, was about to purchase a property and I was like, man, I don't understand half this stuff. Like, how do you learn this stuff? Like, what am I supposed to do? What am I not supposed to do? And I was like, shit, I'll just give it a go. There's not that much. It's not that expensive. It's not like super hard. It just mm-hmm. takes time and you right. just have to dedicate yourself to it. And it has nothing to do with tourism, which at the time was getting a little bit tough for my brain. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> a nice chance to kind of step out of the industry for a bit and think about something else at night times. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, very cool. So what tips do you have for the emerging leaders of tomorrow? Um, I think don't be scared to ask for advice from people that you admire or look up to. Um, Often, especially in big businesses like THL and stuff, you'll find the young people are kind of a little bit scared by like the big bosses or the C-suite, et cetera, and they kind of stay away from them or in a meeting defer to their direct manager and kind of take a step back in those instances. And I think being your authentic self gives you a chance to build a relationship with somebody that can help with your career, not necessarily physically, (laughs) but they can provide guidance or mentorship 
I think often when you talk to somebody who's in their in, in an incredible position in their career, it's quite fascinating to find out how they got there and the challenges yeah. that they went through and that it probably wasn't the straight line that you thought it was. Yeah. And it can really open up your mind to other opportunities for yourself. Um, I think it's really important to put yourself forward, go to events. And if that means going by yourself, just suck it up and go by yourself. Everyone in tourism is super friendly. Like all you have to do is start talking to someone when you get there and you'll feel super welcome and you'll meet some incredible people. I still even kind of give myself that wee rule where when I go to an event like Tech and New Plymouth, I try and talk to five people I haven't met before and just kind of always have that in the back of my head because it immediately makes you feel better because you're like, okay, yes, I'm out there talking to people and you're not just hanging with just your mates, you know? And then the next time you go to the next event, you suddenly have got even more mates and it's just like <laughs> builds and builds and builds. <laughs> yeah. yeah, That's really good advice. I like that. I remember telling a, um, a new person to the industry who was working for me a couple of years ago to go out and find their people. And I didn't want them to hang with me the entire time at training because it is important that we make our own contacts. And I know I'm still friends with my first industry friend from the late 90s. Yeah, they'll be your besties for the whole time. And it's just like building that base. Yeah, I think it's important. Yeah. That's a great piece of advice. And it is nerve wracking, right? Being the first time (laughs) you go to an industry event and then just throwing yourself in with um, people you don't know. But because we are such welcoming people in the industry normally we actually welcome them even more if they've made the effort to come and say hello and they haven't you'll never forget it you'll be like that person came in there to talk to me like good for them yeah 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 100 percent. so nicole a bit like an interview question here but where do you see yourself in five years time i think that's like a super hard question for anyone that works in marketing (laughs) (laughs) um especially digital marketing for goodness sake I definitely still clearly want to be working in tourism um, marketing I know now is my absolute jam something to do with marketing something still helping people I don't know if I can ever go back to being a one business lady I think being working for RTOs working for THL with multiple brands and with Maverick with the, all the businesses that we work with I think I need a lot going on at all times mm. yep I get that <laughs> yeah, yeah. constant yep. stress yeah. Oh, that's cool. Oh, Nick, that wraps up all of our questions for today. Um, so thanks so much for coming in and joining us. And we wish you all the very best at the Tourism Awards. We'll be cheering you on and hopefully we'll see some late night Facebook posts advising us of all of the winners because, well, I won't be there, but hopefully you've got your frock organised and Oh my goodness, I can't wait. I was so glad when it was um, postponed. I was worried it would be cancelled, but yay. I'm so excited <laughs> to see everyone and hang out. Yeah, well, let's let's hope it does go ahead. Our business awards here in Topol have just moved to a virtual um, event. So everybody's getting dressed up at home and Zooming in, which I think will be a little bit fun, but knowing the tourism industry and how much we love to (laughs) celebrate together and get together and how much energy is in the room when we're together, hopefully it'll all be fine by the end of November. So all the best. Thank you so much for having me, ladies. I've had a great time. Oh, anytime. Come back on soon after the award. Tell us all about it. We now head south to chat with a finalist in the Maori Tourism Award category. This award recognises a commercial tourism business that is delivering an authentic Maori tourism visitor experience or product, incorporating the core values of Manaakitanga, Kaitiakitanga and Whenongatanga into its business and visitor offering and demonstrating rangatiratanga within the tourism industry. We welcome Jared Simcox, business manager at the Dark Sky Project to the show. Kia ora, Jared, and welcome. Kia ora, Michelle. Kia ora, Lisa. Kia ora. So congratulations on the finalist nomination that you've got. That's really great news. Can you start by telling us a little bit about the Dark Sky Project and why you think you should win this award? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, for a start, it's an absolute privilege uh, just to be nominated and looking at some of our our peers in the Māori tourism category, uh, it would be fair to say that the, the competition is hot. Mm. Look, for us, um, our kōrero uh, and the kōrero that was gifted to us by Naitahu and, and, and by our Manafuna working group 
underpins everything we do here. And I think it, it positions us uniquely to tell this story that blends uh, what, what we do at nighttime, which is looking through big telescopes and talking to people about astronomy and our night sky and what makes it precious, with the ancestral knowledge, uh, wisdom and practical uses for our night sky. And it's, it's something that's special and it's not unique to Takapo but it is unique to our business. And I think that defines us. Um, and that's something that I, um, I like to see recognised and celebrated is that, you know, Māori tourism can be any number of things. Mm. And, and in this instance, it's, it's sharing our ancestors' knowledge, use and interpretations of, of the night sky. And I think that's special. Mm. Yeah, definitely. So when you say it's not unique to Takapo, I'm assuming you mean just the stargazing aspect of that as opposed to the Māori interpretation? Absolutely. Um, you know, the night sky is there for everyone. And we're very fortunate that down here in Takapo and in the McKenzie district, we've got the largest gold standard international dark sky reserve in the world for now. Mm, yep. um, and, and interpretations of the night sky uh, are different. All around the world and even in New Zealand they can be different from one place to the next mm. um, but in terms of our corridor in terms of our story it is unique to Naitahu so if you like we kind of have an endemic story if you like um, which is unique to our region and, and we're privileged to be able to share that. Yeah cool. Awesome and Jared how do you think Māori tourism has changed and developed over the years? Well look that, that's a little bit of a tricky one for me to answer with any sort of authority because I lived and worked overseas for the thick end of, of nine years. So I've been back in New Zealand since December of last year. So I don't think I can really comment um, on how things have changed. What I can comment on is in, in the nine months that I've been in this role is how we've seen the relationship between our business and the Te Ao Māori components of our business change in terms of its relationship with our domestic visitors mm. because the level of interest that people have across a really wide gambit of, uh, of visitor, uh, the level of interest that they have in the Māori storytelling has just exploded. Mm. You know, we've just recruited a second uh, guide for our dark sky experience, which is our Tereo Māori experience during the day. And that's to keep up with demand. It's the most remarkable thing because people come to Takapo, among other reasons, to go stargazing. Mm -hmm. And what we've seen change is that, you know, people walk through the door and they say, I've heard about this dark sky experience and I'm here to learn. And that change in dynamic is really exciting because people are starting to associate their heritage and their knowledge with Māori heritage and Māori knowledge. Whether you have, whether you fuck a papa to um, one of the iwi or not. I mean, even if you're like me, you're a seventh generation European, you're going, actually, this is a part of my culture. It's part mm -hmm. of my language. It's part of my history. And I want to know about it. Uh, and I, that's super rewarding. It's a really cool thing. Yeah, awesome. And it's great to hear the domestics are responding to that because I was wondering, I guess, traditionally, um, Maori tourism was very much focused around performance and yes. your hangi and concert kind of experiences, whereas now it's broadened out a lot richer and deeper through the tourism economy, hasn't it? So that storytelling yeah. becomes really important. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And people can take what they learn in the the te reo Māori experience here and they can apply it really quickly mm. so that's something unique is uh rather than watching a performance or um uh, or learning a story what what you do when you come through the dark sky experience here is you um learn to find and interpret real objects in the night sky so if the time of year is right, you can learn about Matariki, for example, and that's a really hot topic at the moment. So you mm -hmm. can come and do that with us. And when the sun sets, you can go outside with your whanau and you can find it. Mm. And you can go, I learned about that today. So there's this really immediate reward and practical application for learning about Māori astronomy because you can go and look at the night sky and say, hey, that's that thing I was looking at today. Oh, that sounds cool. 
I haven't actually been to the Dark Sky Project, but it is on my list of places to visit next time oh, I'm down south. So <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> but what ingredients do you think go into creating and delivering a successful and authentic Maori tourism visitor experience? Look, I think um, based on my own experience here in the Dark Sky Project in Tokopoa, it is to absolutely start with uh, with the wisdom around you. And in our case, those are our, our three closest runaka. So that's Arafenua, Moiraki, and Waihau. And calling on their guidance, because there's a lot of really smart people there. So I think being really careful to avoid tokenism mm -hmm. and those cliches yeah. and say, hey, you know, guys, this, this, is, this is your land. It's mana whenua. Give us, some, give us some tips. You know, help us craft that experience and that story. And what you'll find is it becomes a discussion point. So, and then, and interestingly, because we go through this every day, Māori astronomy, I think it's fair to say, is, is constantly evolving and there's new learnings every day. So you get all these people and personalities and wisdom and runaka in a room together and say, this is what we're trying to achieve. And all of a sudden, the knowledge starts flying around and then you've got this really developed, really well-rounded product that you can share with visitors. So I think that very high level of engagement from the iwi is, is the secret source. Mm. And after that, you know, authenticity. If you can't do it authentically, don't do it at all. I was told very early in my, uh, my career here that Dark Sky Project, there's a saying which is nothing about us without us. And that's another way of saying, please protect our stories because they're the story of our ancestors You've got the privilege to share them with your visitors, but please don't undermine the integrity of them because they're important. Mm, absolutely. I think you've answered the question I was going to ask you next, but maybe you can go into a bit more detail about how your business does deliver a successful and authentic Māori tourism visitor experience. Like what kind of strategies do you have in place to ensure that it is truly authentic? You love, you love the values. Um, Naitahu. And I'm going to sound like I'm doing a bit of a, an editorial here for, for Naitahu, but I say this, you know, very authentically, is one, we are a values-led organisation and that permeates into our, our business units and, and ours is one of them. So we live uh, the Naitahu values and, and kind of at its core, we have a saying which is for our children and our children after us. And one of the ways that manifests itself is making sure that Anything that we say on behalf of our ancestors, on behalf of the iwi, is, is correct and is done with integrity and is done with pride. And uh, that comes with the kind of people that we recruit into the business to tell those stories, but also the people we recruit into the business whose roles are not necessarily to tell those stories, but that they understand that they're an integral part of what we do and that it underpins actually everything we do, whether you're working in reception and, and the restaurant or whether you're guiding tours it's that commitment to integrity and delivering an experience where people are wowed by the content, but feel connected to the stories. You know, you can take anyone outside and, and point at a really hot ball of gas and say, that's really interesting because it's a very long way away. And there's a lot of science that makes astronomy interesting and astronomy is science, but the cultural narrative is what people will remember. Mm -hmm. yeah and you know with, with without and when we talk about this without the stories without the corridor the stars really are just very distant balls of gas <laughs> you know you, you're personifying science through telling the mighty corridor and that's I think that's how we deliver that experience as by we're starting with that and going backwards yeah Wow, that's actually a really powerful way of describing it. I'd never thought of the stars like that before, but it might make me look a little bit differently tonight. So it's a petri dish where there are more stars than there are grains of sand on all the beaches on all the earth, and that's just our Milky Way. And when you think about the size and the vastness of it all, anybody would be overwhelmed by that. You know, it's impossible to form a, a connection with an object where the next nearest one is 35 trillion kilometers away. Mm. Wow. Mm. 
But if you give it a name and a purpose, uh, like our ancestors did, and, and a use, all of a sudden that ability to feel a connection with the vastness of space becomes much easier. Yeah. Yeah, very true. Hey, I'm just yeah. on a personal note. Were you into astronomy before you started in this role? Nah. No. No. <laughs> okay. You know, my father tells this story of when we were very young, him sort of pointing out the constellations to me, and I remarked to him that uh, we weren't very big, so it was sort of this childlike ignorance, and I went through a very small phase uh when I was living in Wellington of going up to the astronomy club where we built telescopes out of PVC pipes mm-hmm. and little bits of, of mirror. But no, I never had an interest in astronomy. And even now, surrounded by so many experts, I feel quite overwhelmed and deliberately avoid training sessions because I go, oh, I'm just going to come in here and feel like a complete idiot, which <laughs> is really good because it means that we hire very, very clever people. <laughs> but my ego hates it. <laughs> which leads me on perfectly to my next question. How does your staff recruitment, training and development process support your Maori tourism visitor experience? So that, that's a fabulous question and it's exceptionally pertinent because this is going on right now, which is when people come into the Dark Sky Project, regardless of their role, they are introduced to our values and we start by doing a little bit of basic te reo because we try and use te reo Māori as frequently as we can, Mm -hmm. as well as some of the principles. And we do quite a lot of cross-training. And so what that means is that if you are a night guide with us, for argument's sake, which is largely scientific content for now, Mm -hmm. what we'll do is we second those people um, to spend time with our day guides who are who are and I want to be very careful with the uh, use of the word experts but they are our Māori storytellers Um, so we second them to spend time with each other so they start to develop that knowledge for themselves and then likewise so we can take our our Māori guides and actually second them to spend time with our scientific guides so they develop that knowledge and we also have a really high level of engagement with uh, our runaka. Mm-hmm. So we've got these sources of wisdom that we can call on and say, hey, one of our guides has just asked what the interpretation of this is and why it's important. So we have this super open door policy and these very open lines of communication where all of our staff can go, we are a Māori enterprise with Māori values and there are these great people we can ask questions of if we don't know the answer. Mm-hmm. And that's a cultural thing. It's, it's yeah. very natural. That's great. And do you think your branding and marketing needs to be different to support this product? Goodness. Let me ruminate on that for a second. I think there is more that we can do. And I think reflecting on the opening of this business in 2019, COVID happening in early 2020 and all of the disruption that came with that, a lot of really good intentions, probably like many businesses, got lost in the frame. So we've now been open again for nearly 10 months and we're kind of up and running at a consistent pace and a consistent scale and we're starting to look at ways that we can better communicate our Māori offering. Mm-hmm. Um, we spend a lot of time engaging with schools and groups because this product is perfect for them it's mm-hmm. short it's affordable it happens during the day it's educational in nature so we took responsibility for a lot of that ourselves mm-hmm. looking towards the future can we do more to communicate uh, the dark sky experience and our Māori experience through marketing yeah absolutely I don't think you can ever honestly say that the work there is done Right. So how do you demonstrate rangatiratanga within the Maori tourism or even wider tourism industry? So one of the ways that we demonstrate leadership, uh, if you like, is we, we describe ourselves as being top of funnel. Um, so if you have no interest in Maori astronomy or even the history of our region, Dark Sky Project is a really good place to capture people's imagination and their interest and to funnel that through into higher learning uh, or even into higher interest. So in the case of Rangatiratanga or that custodianship and that leadership role, 
That's kind of the role that we play, but we're also an asset. And what I mean by that is uh, if we have iwi members, whānau members, uh, folks in the broader community that see an opportunity to use the Dark Sky Project as a, a place to host host guests, uh, host information, share information, share expertise, we make ourselves available for that. And we regularly become a, a meeting house uh, for, for our whānau, for our iwi, and, and they'll come out and uh, give us the opportunity to host, which is something we're always grateful for. Awesome. And what are your hopes for the future of our industry with regards to Māori tourism products and experiences? This will sound a little bit cliche, so bear with me. I, I actually look forward to the day where we don't talk about Māori tourism in isolation. Mm-hmm. Um, because you know the history of Aotearoa and our natural assets which is let's be honest a huge part of what's so marketable about us as a destination are incredibly rich with Māori history and story kororo uh, and I think regardless of where you are or what you are doing there's some Māori narrative in there uh, and, and at the moment, we kind of separate the two out and we go, this is a Māori activity or a Māori event or what have you, and this is not. Um, but actually, the two are intrinsically intertwined. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of my hope for the future, is that when people come to New Zealand to visit, that's a part of their destination expectation. And I feel that if you're a tourism operator and you are not incorporating some aspects of Te Māori or language, or kororo, or history, or any aspect of that sort of, uh, that history of that ancestry, then you should probably think about it, because you might find you're missing a trick. People are really interested in that stuff, and we should be talking about it. And I think in a generation or two, I kind of imagine a day where we don't have a Māori tourism award, because everybody's doing it, (laughs) and it's sort of hard to to define the difference between a New Zealand tourism enterprise and a Māori tourism enterprise. Yeah. I do hope, though, we continue to encourage and, and reward uh, people of, of Māori descent and heritage uh, to invest in tourism for their own. And I think that's really careful is that we continue to create opportunities for Māori-owned and operated enterprise mm-hmm. uh, and that we find a way to celebrate that. Um, yeah. So that's kind of my hope for the future is let's make sure we, we're all talking about it and it's all a part of our business but we're celebrating and, and rewarding people who are out there speaking on their own behalf. Hmm. Cool. I, yeah, I really like that. That was a bit of a hot topic at the recent Tourism Export Council conference. I know there were a lot of side discussions happening about what support is there for non-Mari-owned businesses to learn and be, I guess, become more confident in introducing some of the te reo Māori and te ao Māori stuff into their business. And hopefully we'll start to see that develop. I'll, I'll tell you a story about that, you know, full disclosure, because I've, I always grew up and, and I still believe that, that good intentions go a long way. And little did I know that, you know, good intentions in a very large organisation like this, and, and sometimes a complex one, there, there are channels to seek wisdom and seek guidance and sometimes you need to be respectful of those but in my second week I got into the business and there were some concepts I didn't understand or are struggling to understand there was some language that I didn't understand and I had questions like how can we get out of whenua which is our, our sort of closest through Naka how can we get out of whenua Māori school to come through here who can I call on for guidance around language and, and a few other bits and pieces and I was at a council event And I asked this of one of the iwi advisors that was there and he gave me the phone number. So that's kind of the the GM, the boss of our local runaka. And he said, give him a call. He's a nice guy. And so I gave him a call (laughs) thinking this was the right thing to do. And it wasn't the wrong thing to do, but there were other other avenues that were available to me, which I should have gone down first that I now know to do. (laughs) And, you know, in my naivety, um, I had a really lovely chat with, uh, with this gentleman and his, his closing remark was, if you do ever have any questions, just call the marae, you know, pick up the phone. Yeah. And it's very easy to be intimidated by a language that you don't speak, 
a culture that might not necessarily be your own. But the reality is my experience so far has been if your heart's in the right place and you genuinely want to embrace Māori in your experience, pick up the phone and call them all right. And somebody somewhere will know who you need to go and talk to. And go and have a cup of tea. It'll, if you're a tourism operator, it will change your life. Yeah. You know, if you were brave enough to start an organisation, if you were brave enough to set up a tourism enterprise in one of the most you know, challenging and competitive industries in the world, be brave enough to pick up the phone and, and talk to someone who you know, might be different to you. But I can promise you it'll be an enriching experience and you'll be better for it. Uh, and so too will your business. Yeah, that's really good advice. And that's yeah. certainly been my experience over the years working in tourism as well. So hopefully um, somebody out there will be listening and pick up the phone and be brave today. So Jared, that wraps up our questions for today. So thank you so much for joining us. And we wish you all the very best at the Tourism Awards in November. And uh, hope you have a a great night there. We also have, courtesy of Jared and the Dark Sky Project team, we have a double pass to the Summit Experience, valued at $298 to give away. So this is going to be a Facebook competition. So head to Destinate NZ on Facebook and you can find all the details there on how to enter. And and thank you once again, Jared, and good luck. Good luck. Matewa, see you guys. Thank you so much. Matewa. Well, I'm delighted to welcome to the show an old work colleague and friend of mine, Emma Bean. Emma has the coolest job in the world as the Kiwi Hatchery Manager at the National Kiwi Hatchery in Rotorua. Kia ora, Emma, and welcome to the show. Kia ora. Thanks, Michelle. Kia ora, Emma. How are you? Good, Lisa. Good. Yeah, and I proudly say that I do have the best job in the world I'm not ashamed of it but I am humbled at the opportunity (laughs) yeah no it is very cool and I'm sure as we go through the interview you're going to tell us a little bit more about what you do but let's just start out by talking a little bit about the National Kiwi Hatchery and what you do there and why you entered the Conservation Awards okay So we are the largest and most successful kiwi hatchery in New Zealand and by default the world. We've hatched over 2,100 kiwi chicks since we began in 95. Um, I've actually been here over 14 years and during my time I've been lucky enough to see the 500th, 1,000th and 2,000th hatch. So a lot of the work's been done in the more recent history and we're proud to say that an over the last 10 years, we've ad- averaged a hatch success of 95%. So, um, yeah, we've been doing it um, long enough that we know what we're doing and we really enjoy sharing the work that we do, not just with our Manahiri and visitors, but also enabling other projects to learn from the knowledge that we've got. So collectively amongst the team, we've got a really low staff turnover and we've got over 75 years experience between the small team. And a lot of us are DOC accredited trainers. And so we're sort of the the central point for training within the Kiwi community. And we're really proud to share our expertise so that other projects can do their mahi all around New Zealand, uh, predominantly the North Island. But just supporting their work means that we, in addition to those conservation outcomes of getting over 2,100 chicks back out into the wild at an increased survival rate, we're also enabling the projects to do their hard mahi and and do the the predator control on their projects, which totals over uh, 73,000 hectares. So it's all community work, you know, iwi and and community and doc-led projects that really work together to save our national icon. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's really cool. And I can't believe that's amazing that you're over 2,100 now. We were having a chat offline before and and this week is really interesting for me because 10 years ago when I was at Rainbow Springs and Naitahu, we were about to celebrate the thousandth Kiwi Hatch. So it doesn't seem that long ago that (laughs) we were counting down for that and you've doubled those numbers already. So congratulations. That's amazing. Yeah, thank you. How proud is such a great, great program. So tell us a bit how it all started and how it's evolved. 
So it began back in 1995 with literally one egg being brought in from the Tongariro forest that we successfully hatched. Sort of in parallel at that time in the late 90s, they were realizing that stoats were the number one predator for kiwi chicks. So they were realizing that other predators obviously still affect the adult populations, but trying to get the chicks through that vulnerable stage to become a breeding adult was one of the key things. And so obviously in conjunction with, with trapping, which is still vitally important and the predator control in the forest, what we need to do is make sure that we capture the remaining genetics of the kiwi population. So there's about 68,000 kiwi nationwide. There's five species and a one subspecies. We work with the brown kiwi, which is the only one found naturally present in the North Island. And there's about 25,000 brown kiwi left, which sounds like a lot, but actually 27 kiwi are killed by predators every week. And that is a, it, just an astounding figure. 68,000 kiwi nationwide, the majority are actually in un unmanaged populations. And kiwi in total are decreasing at around two to 3% annually. And so if we don't act now, we could actually be looking at a future where kiwi are not with us. And so it's really important to capture the populations that we've got now and make sure that we don't get to a situation where there are too fewer individuals and not that genetic di diversity to make sure that we've got a robust first population moving forward when hopefully our predator-free 2050 will be successful and ideally I'll be done out of a job. <laughs> so yeah, we're, we hatch about 70% of the kiwi chicks that are hatched ex situ nationally. And yeah, as I say, it's now over 2,100 that we've hatched. And those chicks, instead of having just a 5% survival chance in the wild because of the stoats, if we keep them safe when they're vulnerable, we end up increasing their survival rates in the wild to 65%. Wow. Yeah, it's a, a huge difference. So it's, it's basically keeping them safe until they can reach a kilo in weight because they're precocious we things, you know, they're, they're feisty and they want to give you the bash as soon as they hatch out of the shell. They're just <laughs> tiny at 350 grams. And unfortunately, a, it's, it's no um, weight for a stoat. But if we can get them up to a kilo, that's when they are deemed stoat proof. So it's 65% survival, which is actually enough to maintain the population. It's not 100% because you've still got other introduced predators like your ferret, some dogs, you know, so it but it's enough to make sure that populations continue to increase and we will continue to see kiwi in our future generations. That's amazing. Good on yeah. you. Well done. It is very cool. And I guess you're a little bit different maybe from some of the other conservation award finalists in that everything you do is conservation. It's not a project on the side. It's it's absolutely enveloped in everything that you guys do on a day-to-day -day basis as well. Absolutely. So we are, I guess, pure and simple conservation in action. You know, the, the majority of our mahi is conservation outcomes focused, but we certainly are really proud of our other role, which is our advocacy role. We need to make sure that everybody cares for Kiwi. And this is shared with our um, Manahiri to make sure that not over, only are we sharing the Kaitiaki promise and that broader conservation messaging piece, but making sure that when visitors leave, we know how to protect the environment for future generations. and be responsible pet owners and support local kiwi projects. Because after all, it, it takes a village to raise a kiwi. It can't be done alone in, mm. and in a silo. And so it's making sure that everybody cares for kiwi, that we've got that community support and that we can also share our expertise to help the projects that we work with achieve their conservation goals. So, and getting volunteers through their projects. And, and so it really is all encompassing. And that Kaitiakitanga uh, value is, yeah, first and foremost in, in the work that we do. Wow. Yeah. That's cool. And do you think 
your visitors that are coming through, because you're obviously doing guided tours through the National Kiwi Hatchery, are they coming to see a Kiwi first and foremost, do you think, or are they coming because they're interested in the conservation efforts? Is there, are you seeing a change in what they're looking for or? I, I think it's a bit of both, Michelle. I think mm. some people come to tick off seeing a Kiwi yeah. and then they're happily surprised at what they see. Mm-hmm. And so I think there a lot of people have no idea of the work that we do at the National Kiwi Hatchery, the volume of kiwi that we get back out into the wild, but also the work that it takes. You know, it, it, it's very easy to say incubate and hatch a kiwi. Well, actually, there's an awful lot to be learned. And this is where we've got two products that you can join us on. So we've got the essential tour for 45 minutes, which gives you an unforgettable insight into what we do. And, you know, you can observe what we do from behind glass. So you'll often see me in an all-in-one incubation suit with a hanger on whistling to an egg. And to, to me, that is one of the most amazing moments because until that point, people don't fully understand that the eggs that we're caring for have a kiwi chick in them. It's quite, a, because we're mammals, we have babies. Yeah. And, usually eggs are an item on a recipe list it's actually quite a foreign concept and so I absolutely love it when I see a a guest on the other side of the glass have this light bulb moment when they see the egg wobbling on the bench in response to me whistling to it and then I'll candle the egg and they might see a foot kick in the in the egg and and there's this like understanding of wow there's a baby in there you know Um, and then the other project pr- product that we've got is the exclusive behind the scenes project, which is everything of the essential tour, but they get the opportunity to step behind the glass in the brooder room and actually meet a kiwi chick behind the glass. So this is something that if you go on our website, you'll see that Megan and Harry got the opportunity to do. So okay, yep. um, it's a, a right royal experience. You don't get to touch the, the, the chick or hold the chick because we're very much focused on the welfare of the chick and making sure that their um, health and well-being is paramount. But if, if the chick's welfare is okay, we will get the opportunity to have your photo standing next to the, the hatchery team member holding the kiwi chick. But it is it really is something quite unique, whether you're behind the glass or in front of the glass you really do without having that I guess magical moment to see a kiwi chick um, you don't understand the reason why all the hard work is so important you know to get those eggs to us there's been hours of monitoring in the field by the the projects tramping up and down dale to get um, the eggs to us and the work at the hatchery and then the post-release monitoring as well. It really is that the hard yards that everybody's putting in to save our national icon is is second to none. And it really, you, you get an essence of that on the tour. And hopefully that means that we send out conservation ambassadors, you know, that advocacy role is so key and they'll be the, the future conservationists heading off and and doing all the hard yards um, in generations to come and really that is an added bonus on top of the pure conservation work if you like that we do at the hatchery but being able to share um, our passion for conservation and you can see in the faces of the visitors it it, it is really it's contagious you know and so that's just fantastic to see. It's contagious on this show. <laughs> yeah, I'm coming. I'm an advocate. <laughs> well, I, I can vouch how emotional it is when you see an egg wobble and I've stood there to watch an egg hatch as well. And I think one of the first hatches I actually saw because they don't hatch on demand. <laughs> and a lot of the time you're not there and able to, to wait for it to watch. But I think it was the 500th Kiwi and we had, you might remember Emma, but we had media there waiting 
for this ad because it was kind of even before the days of live streaming and things like that. So we had yeah. media with their cameras behind the glass and we were waiting and all of a sudden it was Friday night and we wanted to hit the six o'clock news and then all of a sudden it just popped open and all of us, including the journalists, and I can't remember who it was, but it was somebody from TVNZ, we were all there with tears streaming down our face because it was yeah. actually a really emotional thing to see and it, I guess it helps also that the Kiwi are cute. <laughs> well, they are, it, it, and it does help. You know, it, it's they are that sort of flagship species, you know. Yeah. And other conservation colleagues of mine have less glamorous species that they do all the hard <laughs> yards for. And I really do admire them continuing to do that work because they they don't get the kudos that kiwi conservationists do. But actually, we can be almost a gateway into conservation for a lot of people. Like it, it takes the cute and fluffy to get people engaged in the, the messaging that we're trying to share. And then they can go off and start saving maybe a, a, a less um, glamorous species. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. And so you talk about how many people it is involved in and what, you know, and the, the lengths that they go to to be involved in looking after these Kiwis. So how do you find the staff and the people that you need to be involved with these conservation efforts? Where do you pick them from? And basically, everybody who hears what I do for a job wants to work with us. <laughs> And then no one ever leaves. We're always open to having volunteers come and join the team. And they always ask, how do we get a job? Uh, Jokingly, and I must say jokingly, I always say you have to kill one of us because we we don't go anywhere because not only is the work that we do invaluable, but we're really lucky that the team that we've got doing it are like-minded individuals. We have a really collaborative approach to decision-making and the, yeah, the, the, the team spirit is second to none. And we've had people from all over the world join us in pre-COVID days. And that's the message that we get unanimously is, wow, this team is unlike any other I've worked with. And so, it is really tricky to, to get a foot in the door and volunteering is, is definitely something that I'd advocate. I actually started as a volunteer myself. So I, you've probably picked up on the accent, but I was on my OE and I'd spent six months traveling through Southeast Asia, working with other amazing projects with elephants and uh, other species. But for whatever reason, Kiwi captured my heart and it was the team that, meant that I wanted to stay on the other side of the world from my family, you know? So there's certainly something unique about the bird, the project and the team. As far as skill set goes, we're actually recruiting at the moment and very few people have egg handling or, or kiwi handling skills, which is probably no surprise um, to you guys. And we do anticipate training those key skills up to the successful candidates, but it's the attitude, basically, that passion for conservation and the initiative, resilience, collaborative approach. It's the personal attributes of the individual that will get them a role in conservation. And that goes not only for our team, but uh, across all of the conservation teams, really. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not always glamorous, as some people might say. You guys are out in the mud and cleaning out <laughs> Kiwi runs. You've and got it. And all yeah. weather. And <laughs> yeah. I mean, probably 1% of our day is holding Kiwi or candling eggs. The rest yeah. of it is picking up poo to send away for testing or just cleaning up poo <laughs> or digging or. Yeah, honestly, it is the least glamorous role ever, but it's absolutely, I wouldn't be anywhere else. As I say, there's a lot of team members that have been here longer than I have who um, <laughs> would say the same. So we're incredibly honoured to do the, the mahi at the National Kiwi Hatchery. Brilliant. Oh, sounds great. Yeah. I mean, your passion just shines through so clearly on, on this interview. <laughs> and I'm sure there'll be so many people listening going, I want to go there. But one final question before we wrap this up, Emma, for any tourism businesses who are out there thinking that they want to get involved in a conservation project, but they don't really know where to start, have you got any tips for them? So I guess that, the key thing would be to look at what is already out 
in your local community and see whether you can support them. The big thing would be try and align your conservation messaging with messaging that is already out there. So there's an advocacy document for Kiwi that has three core messages. We all need to care for Kiwi is the first one. Second one is be a responsible pet owner. And the third one is help your local project. And so making sure that we're all singing from the same song sheet, you know, so it's the same concept as the orangutan being aligned with palm oil and and telling that messaging of, of trying to avoid palm oil in your product. So it's, it's getting in touch, seeing what's out there locally and what messaging they would like you to share. Certainly the National Kiwi Hatchery would be keen to partner with anyone that would wish to share our messaging. So it, it takes on average $2,787 to hatch and raise a kiwi chick to a stoke-proof weight. And so that is the price that we put on naming a kiwi chick. Mm-hmm. So if wow. any businesses would be interested in sponsoring a kiwi chick, they would then get the opportunity to meet that chick as well as track the progress of that chick. We'll be sharing health updates of the egg and the chick as it progresses through its journey. So that's certainly something that has a tangible outcome from a conservation perspective, but it also assists us to continue our work and show that your, the business's customers, that they care by having the opportunity to share that prize. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, no, that's a great idea. Well, Emma, thank you so much for joining us today. I think saving our national icon is a truly rewarding job. And thank you for sharing your passion for that with us and our listeners. And I'm sure our listeners have learned a lot about the conservation efforts that you all make at the National Kiwi Hatchery over there in Rotorua. So all the best for the awards night. Thank we'll be you very cheering much. you on and can't wait to hear what <laughs> happens at that. But I'm sure you'll all have a fun night. There are, we were talking earlier, there are a few of the Naitahu businesses in the finals. So hopefully there's a, a big team of you going along to celebrate each other's Absolutely. success on the night but wish you all the best also listeners emma and the team at the national kiwi hatchery have donated a fabulous prize for us which we will be giving away in the next couple of weeks because this episode we do have the other naitahu product with the dark sky project so keep listening in because honestly if you've enjoyed this interview we have one of the coolest prizes i think that is available in New Zealand, anywhere coming up on the show. So that brings us to the end of another episode. Thanks once again for joining in. Don't forget to leave a review if you've enjoyed the show and come over to our socials and follow us over there too. So have a great week, everyone. Thanks again, Emma, and we'll see you next Wednesday. Ka kite. Ka kite. Ka kite.